The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, take the dunce cap off your Vista machine and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 366 with guest Eric Swadeen, recorded live Tuesday, July 29th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for.NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who's more excited than a ladies' underwear salesman at a Tom Jones concert, Carl Franklin! Hi, this is Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Uh, Richard is on vacation in the Galapagos Islands. Sitting in for him on the phone today is Mark Dunn. Hi, Mark. Hey, Carl. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. So it turns out our, our whirlwind tour of the world, uh, uh, Tech Ed, it, wa- is a wash because pretty much of uh, the, the economy and gas prices, oil prices, and attendance, uh, budgets were down. Not a good year to go uh, world hopping. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to chalk uh, this year off as a bad year, and uh, hopefully we can pull that together again next year. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. Um, let's get right into... Oh, before we get into Better Know Framework, I want to tell you what I did yesterday. You're going to like this. I um, I was attending my grandfather-in-law's 90th birthday party, and on the ride home, I was thinking, 90 years old. Who else is in my name is 90? Oh, yeah, Les Paul is 90-something years old. And I, I remembered that I had promised myself I would go down to New York City, where he plays every Monday night at the Iridium Jazz Club, Holy and cow, he's still playing. He's I, still I playing, 93 years old. He plays every Monday night, and he signs autographs, and he signs guitars. So I wanted him to sign my Gibson Les Paul, of course. So I did it. I brought it down. I went to a couple of set in on a couple of sets and watched the band, and they were great, and stood in line and got my Gibson Les Paul signed. 
And uh, I took pictures. And if you want to read that and read the story and see the pictures, it's at shrinkster.com slash 10PR, 10PR. And of course, Les Paul invented multi-track recording, invented delay and reverb, and invented the solid body electric guitar. And, and a guy behind me after uh, after I got it signed said, you know, it's kind of like getting Alexander Graham Bell to sign your telephone, isn't it? <laughs> wow. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, Les Paul was kind of like, uh, uh, who was the guy that started Boston? Uh, you know, he was an inventor. Tommy he, Schultz. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he had several patents. And, uh, you know, you've, you've got a guy that's uh, sort of well-versed in both the arts and science there right. together. Exactly. So he was a big influence on me using both halves of my brain as a guitar player. Also, I want to um, talk about, in lieu of an email today, the Mojave Experiment, which is at M-O-J-A-V-E experiment.com. And um, this was something that um, Microsoft did with a bunch of random computer users, I guess, who had heard negative things about Vista, and they showed them a new operating system that Microsoft was coming out with, codenamed Mojave, the next version of Windows, and it turned out to be Vista, and everybody was very positive about it. Oh, <laughs> uh, that was pretty crafty of them. So anyway, uh, be that as it may, you can check out the, the videos that they took at MojaveExperiment.com. Um, anyway, let's get in now to Better Know Framework. So Better Know Framework is a little segment where I shine a light on a little piece of the .NET framework that you can go look up at a later time on your own time. Uh, today I'm going to talk about the system.configuration.configuration class, which represents a config file applicable to a particular computer, application, or resource. And uh, there's some sample code in there. This is what you can use to read and write config files. And, uh, of course, if you're using... Visual Basic in, in Visual Studio 2008, you can use the my.settings keyword. Uh, makes things a lot easier. Uh, but if, you know, you want a little more control over config files, this is the way to do it. System.configuration.configuration. And that's it. So, Show enough, man. That's, that's good stuff. Yeah. I love my settings. Yeah, absolutely. My.settings is lifesaver. Well, Mark, this is a little bit of a different show than we're normally used to because our guest isn't uh, a .NET specialist. He uh, wrote an excellent book on the history of computing and uh, should just be a, a great show to geek out to. Eric Swedeen is an associate professor at Weber State University in the Information Systems and Technologies Department, specializing in information security and interdisciplinary studies. He teaches students how to be hackers so that they may defend against hackers. His doctorate is in the history of science and technology, and he regularly teaches history classes at Weber State. His publications include numerous articles, three history books, and a historical mystery novel, The Killing of Greybird. Eric lives in a 125-year-old house with his wife Betty and four children. His website is www.swedin.org. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. So I went looking for interesting people to have on the show who uh, are not necessarily .NET people, and um, I was looking at just some fun stories. I think I searched on Amazon for stories of computing, uh. 
And I found your book and read the excerpt and stuff, and, and it's great stuff. You've obviously been in technology a while, uh, yep. quite a long time. The um, and, and some of the comments about your book was that it, it reads like, like a novel, the, the history of science book, mm-hmm. or the history of computer science. What, what gave you the idea to write such a book, and, and why in that style? Uh, well, there was a um, there's a company called Greenwood, and they decided they wanted to publish a series of books, mostly for the library market, called Technographies, which would be basically history of technology biographies. Hmm. So, you know, a book on tanks, a book on cars, a book on radio and such. And um, they send out, they were looking for writers, and they sent out to a history of technology email list I belong to. And so I said, hey, we'd be interested in doing um, one on history of computers. And we wrote up a small proposal, and they said, yes, we're thrilled. And um, it took about nine months, and we wrote it, and it did really well. And um, last year, um, John Hopkins University Press um, contracted to republish it as a soft cover so that it would be more accessible to everyone and, and not for the library market at that point. So hmm. it's uh, sold pretty well, and um, we've had pretty good responses to it. And, uh, it's been, uh, it was interesting because it's, 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 it's not very long. It's only about 60,000 words and it, mm-hmm. it covers from the very beginning all the way up to the present. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's quite a task to, uh, to cover that, that much history, I guess, in, uh, in a short book. Yeah, it is. But we, and we very much oriented it towards people who had some familiarity with computers, but not a lot. You know, it was towards the non-specialist. It always amazes me um, when I read about the history of computing, how much the Department of Defense actually had to do with the development of computer technology. Oh, and not, not just the earliest computers that were used to calculate uh, ballistic missile trajectories and things, but the Internet itself being designed uh, during the Cold War to, uh, you know, to withstand nuclear attack. And it's kind of ironic how now governments all around the world are are trying to control it. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's true. Well, yeah, there's two parts to that. Uh, The one is, um, yeah, of course, funding of the federal funding and funding from governments was vital to the development of computers. In fact, the first true um, electronic computer was the Colossus machine in England, and that was developed during World War II by the British government to break, um, to be a code-breaking machine. It's mm. it's not as well known as the Enigma machine, right? But that was um, mechanical, wasn't it? The, the, the Enigma machine was electromechanical. Right. It did have electrical impulses going through it, but it was it had gears and and it wasn't completely purely electronic, mm. unlike the Colossus machines. And the Colossus machines um, didn't have any real impact on the history of computing. Because really? they kept them so secret that that technology wasn't wasn't able to go out in the commercial sector. In fact, they destroyed all the machines to uh, by 1960. And so it wasn't until the 1970s that we even knew that that machine even existed. And so it was never part of the history of computers. Now you say machine, but these were actually big, big things, right? They Tell were. us a little bit about Colossus. Uh, Colossus was a machine that was designed to break what was called fish traffic. Um, it was, the fish traffic was telex machines. 
So um, unlike uh, mm. like the Enigma machine, where you would get Morse code, you would get uh, the Morse code over the uh, the airwaves, and this person would write down all this gibberish, and then they would type it into the Enigma machine, and that would come the decrypted material. Um, the Telex machine is you would type it in, it would automatically send it over the radio waves, and then at the recipient end, it would automatically decrypt it for you. And the fish traffic was interesting because the British were able to decrypt that traffic without ever having a machine in their possession, just based on the radio signals. Wow. Whereas the Enigma, they had multiple copies of the Enigma machine to take apart and try to figure out how that worked. Yeah, but, that's that. How how big was it? When was this a tube machine? Um, uh, yeah, it was tube based. Um, you know, I off top of my head, I can't say how big it is. You always hear stories about how the these computers took up you know entire floors of buildings and things. Yeah, Carl, I'm actually looking at a picture of Colossus on Wikipedia right now, and it looks pretty darn big to me. Okay, we'll we'll, we'll leave that as the actual measurement. Pretty darn big. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like to well, be precise when I can. <laughs> well, the biggest machines, computer machines ever, computers ever built were for the Sage Air Defense System in the United States, and they took up a three-story building. Wow. Wow. All three floors? All three floors. Jeez. And we used them. They were built in the 50s, and they used them up until the early 80s. And what were those used for? They were an air defense system. They were, they were, they were spread all across the country, and they were used to coordinate sending up fighter interceptors and stuff in case the Soviets launched an attack on us. Yeah, okay. Now, now, Mark, I'm pulling up the Colossus picture. It's got the typical look of lots of, you know, switches and dials and things and some nicely dressed females walking around. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Looks a little bit more complicated than my notebook computer these days. A little bit. Well, the, it... Uh... The Briti- a British museum in the 90s actually built another Colossus. Oh, they yeah. They found that's... the plans and made one work, um, which was interesting. Wow. It's an, it is an interesting picture. And um, these things, I don't even want to know, like, you know, what, what the memory and storage was. It was probably ridiculously small. Minuscule. Minuscule. And programmable? I mean, how did they program this thing? Just with the switches? Um, th- that would have been switch driven, yeah, because um, the idea of a loadable program is something that occurred in the late 40s. That was mm-hmm. von Neumann's great contribution, was writing a paper that talked about loadable programs and instead of basically, you know, using switches to build your program. No, von Neumann? Von Neumann. Von no- I always. Von Neumann, von Neumann. Okay. Neumann. Uh, it's, it's, I believe it's Neumann. Uh, I actually had a, uh, a history of mathematics class when I was in college. Right. And uh, that, that name popped up again and again. Uh, you know, the, the dude was huge in game theory. Oh, yeah. And he's considered the, the father of computing, basically um, for writing one paper. Wow. That described the modern... Um, he wrote this in the mid-40s, and it described the modern uh, cycle of fetch, um, uh, decode, execute, and also this whole idea of um, loadable programs, and then so make it basically general-purpose computing. What was the... Uh, oh, yeah, nice nice work if you can get it. <laughs> what? Uh, and he probably died penniless, too, probably. 
Um, you know, he, he was working for the Defense Department, and they, he was just a troubleshooter that was taken from project to project because he was so brilliant. Yeah. And he just happened to meet someone on the plane trap platform that was working on the ENIAC and mm. went and looked at it. And a lot of the ideas, there's, there was quarrels over who should really have the ideas. Um, the guys who had worked on the ENIAC, a lot of those ideas had, were already theirs. But what von Neumann did is he actually put them into a mathematically rigorous format into a paper that as people could rely upon. Weren't the Germans working on some sort of computer in uh, 1941 as well? The Germans did. Yeah, there was a there was a German efforts. Um, they were more of electromechanical machines. Mm-hmm. Um, and there it was even even after the war, there was a small industry that grew up, but um, it was not really influential on the overall history of computing. You look at the history of computing, and it almost all goes right back to the ENIAC. Yeah, ENIAC is the one that people think of you know and that that was the ballistic missile calculator wasn't it? it it was well it was uh artillery tables for um yeah for artillery not necessarily artillery. ballistic missiles okay yeah and and that was that the one that took up three three floors no it was a machine later in the 1950s the sage computers oh sage that um took up that many floors and uh and is that that story about the bug the actual bug real like where that term bug in the program came from there are okay you know <laughs> there the, we're we're never going to know yeah. the truth of that there is actually a a picture of a bug that someone retrieved from one of the computers that short circuited out some stuff and they scotch taped it to the paper okay but the term bug predated computers to refer to glitches in mechanical machinery that you were trying to fix. Oh, that makes perfect sense, actually. Yeah. I remember the one, uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, first came on the air. The first guy to win a million dollars, that was the million-dollar question. Was it? Yep. It was, it was debugging, and, you know, a moth, I think they said, was stuck in a tube. And... Uh, he he used his lifeline to call his father and tell him, you know what, I'm about to win a million dollars because I know the answer to this. Wow. <laughs> That'd be funny because you could argue either way on that question. Interesting. Maybe his million dollars should be revoked. <laughs> <laughs> and people were thinking about logical machines long before World War One, too. I guess Babbage is credited yes. with the first guy who thought that there could be a machine that could deduce. Um, you can go back even further, and you have even Pascal had a calculating machine. And, of course, Babbage had his, his two engines, his analytical and his different engines. Hmm. Um, and he wasn't really in, that influential in the history of computing um, in the terms of looking at it as a historian and saying, okay, did this idea make this difference but um he, he was really visionary and he had a lot of really good ideas the problem was is he didn't have the funding and the mechanical technology at the time really couldn't maintain yeah. um the the tolerances that he really needed to do though interestingly enough there was a machine at Harvard called the Mark 1 which was an electromechanical uh computing machine in the 30s and the guy who built it, one of his inspirations was, was literally finding part of one of the old Babbage machines in an attic at Harvard. Hmm. 
And so in that sense, it was influential. Wow. You're listening to .NET Rocks from .NET Rocks.com. This is Carl. I have a message from our sponsor, Telerik, who wants you to know about the best way to learn using new dev tools and technologies. Well, is it reading manuals, watching videos, playing with sample code? How about all of the above? So Telerik recently launched their new interactive trainer tool to help you effectively learn all the Telerik products in your own pace. The Telerik trainer is a slick WPF app that combines a video player with synchronized highlights, a table of contents for topical navigation, and a context-sensitive code launcher. While playing the narrated videos, you'll see a code button light up at a relevant section. Click the button, and you'll open the respective file from the provided project directly into Visual Studio. No more searching for code while watching a training video. This is indeed innovation in training. They're always releasing new tutorials for all the Telerik products, so don't waste any more time and download this amazing new training tool now at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K. And as you know, it, when it comes to developer tools, it's not just about great products, but also about reliable support and effective training materials, and that's exactly what our friends at Telerik have done. Check it out. Now let's get back to the show. You, you know, um, when I was a kid, I used to love watching the Jetsons. Mm-hmm. Which was I'm I'm not sure if that was a '50s or a '60s cartoon. I guess I think it was early '60s. Early '60s, but I remember they they had a computer called the Uniblab. Uniblab, <laughs> Mister Spicely, the Uniblab is malfunctioning, sir. Um, and I guess that was a a, a takeoff on the Univac. Yeah, which was popular in the '60s, was it? Well, it was well known. It was well known term because the people who built the uh, ENIAC later formed a commercial company and built the Univac, which was the first commercial computer, and this is early 1950s. Okay. And, of course, it's very famous because um, as a publicity stunt, they put it on television with Walter Cronkite on CBS for the 1952 presidential election. Yeah. And this was the first effort to try to predict the outcome of an election. So they, uh-huh. they looked at all the statistics, and they programmed, they wrote a program, and it predicted a landslide for Eisenhower, and they wouldn't believe it. So they fudged and, and, and changed what it, they said it was predicting. And in fact, of course, Eisenhower was a landslide. And uh, so the first example of a computer program being right and people not believing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how, I mean, how did they, what was that program like? I mean, how did, what kind of data did they feed it? It must Basically, not have been a lot of data because obviously those things didn't have, couldn't access a lot of data. No, it wasn't. It was basically, it was the results of previous elections for the different states and trying to, as early returns came in, trying to match them. Uh-huh. Not nearly, the, it's the same technique we use today, but not nearly as sophisticated today. It's on a very neural you know, localized level. Yeah. And I imagine right. neural networks and things would be used today for that kind of prediction, but... They, um, I don't know, actually, on that. Um, what about the Manchester computers? Um, what were those they were, all about? They, they were interesting efforts because people who had worked on the Enigma machines and the Colossus later came and started working on these, these British efforts, and um, there was a British computer industry that grew up around them, and um, the Manchester computer, of course, um, 
as I, if I recall correctly, makes the claim to being the first one to run a loadable program um, somewhat earlier than the American machine. But, um, you know, the, the British economy was just struggling, and they just didn't have the financing to build a really robust computer industry like the United States did. And so the U.S. Econ- the U.S. economy, which was surging, just came to dominate the entire computer industry, worldwide computer industry, quite frankly. Um, so they're they're interesting little efforts, um, but uh, very much not necessarily in the future, but very much for a long period of time, the the history of the world computer industry is really the history of the American computer industry. Uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, Alan Turing uh, for a minute, uh-huh. if I could. Um, yeah. I know, I guess, he devised a series of tests that, yeah. uh, that led to say that a, a computer was a, uh, a Turing machine or a Turing complete machine. Right. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, he was his test was trying to see whether or not someone, um, if a computer was artificially intelligent, and the idea was you would sit down at a terminal and type in questions, and at the other end would either be a human being or a computer. And in fact, at the end of asking those questions, um, you couldn't determine whether or not it was a human or a computer at the other end, and that must be intelligence. Um, that's not a test that's really accepted anymore because um, people are kind of narcissistic. <laughs> <laughs> And you can actually engage in a conversation with them that doesn't um, um, that doesn't really show something like that. And, and, and Turing made really important theoretical advances, um, and of course died an early death from suicide. Right. Let's forward and fast forward in history a little bit to um, when computers got so sophisticated that they started doing parallel computing. Okay. Um, what was the first real parallel? And by parallel computing, I just mean multitasking with the with the introduction of threads and that kind of stuff. When did that start to take shape? Um, I'm trying to recall. I mean, you could multitasking machines um, and multitasking operations systems like Multics, which was a government, which was an effort in the '60s. Um, they still were basically doing time slicing, and it was still running on a single processor. Um, I don't recall top of my head when the first parallel machines were running. Well, yeah, I, even time slicing um, mm-hmm. as a as a way of doing simulated multi parallel uh, simulated parallelism, I guess you could call right. it. You're still doing context switching, and and so so multics, I guess, was one of the first. One of the very first efforts um, was not commercially successful, but the technology they developed was spun off into other um, efforts, including the development of Unix. U- Unix really was revolutionary, wasn't it? Um, yeah, there were other operating systems similar to Unix. What, what, what made Unix really revolutionary was that they, at the same time, um, they developed the language C, which, of course, was developed on a language called B. They're so original. <laughs> um, and what they did is they rewrote most of the operating system in a third-generation language. And that was one of the first times that had ever been done. And um, before that, everyone was always writing their language in assembler. And by rewriting it in a third-generation language, they actually had a portable operating system that they could move from 
architecture to architecture and recompile. I mean, and that was the Java of its day, wasn't it? If you think about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good way of putting it because Unix, the Unix philosophy quite rapidly became that you would write a program and with the proper defined statements, you could actually compile the same code on multiple architectures and run that program. And that was very revolutionary. Bell Labs. 1969, I was two. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we won't even go there. I'm sorry. But uh, I guess, um, was it Dennis Ritchie and Kernigan? What was was his first name? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Brian Brian Kernigan. Brian Kernigan. One developed the language, the other one developed the OS. And the whole motivation was to develop a machine to play Space Wars on. No way. Yeah, it was, actually. <laughs> yeah, you got to have a good motivation for doing anything, right? Well, Space Wars, um, which was developed at MIT in the early 60s, was really the first video game. And it inspired people like Nolan Bushnell, who later went on to create Atari. Huh. And um, it uh, basically, it's a, it was a very elementary version of Asteroid. Wow. They developed Unix to play Space Wars. Yes, that was the original motivation. What do you, when do you think was the first realization that um, computers could be used in business? Because they were originally, obviously, for defense. They were. There was a really early realization because the UNIVAC was really designed as a business computer. And, of course, you had international business machines, IBM. Right. And IBM... Um, which had uh, became IBM in the 1920s was a merger of the Hollerith company, which had built um, uh, one of the one of the precursors to computers. Basically, it was using punch cards being processed to tabulate counters and uh, and typewriters and other and adding machines and other stuff. So IBM was the behemoth already of business machinery, and they had analytical machines that were mechanical electromechanical machines, and they invested a lot of money into developing electronic machines. And during the 50s, they were just one of a variety of computer companies struggling to dominate the industry and provide uh, business computing to um, to banking, to banks and insurance companies and other places that had really large data processing needs. And um, in the at the same time, they were fulfilling military contracts. And military contracts were really the thing that was driving the technology. Well, that's where the money was, right? It was, and um, and then of course in the in the sixties, with the introduction of the uh, um, the three sixty system, um, IBM came to completely dominate the computer industry, and uh, it, it got to the point that. Um, there was IBM, and then there was the seven, they were called the seven dwarfs, which were the seven other smaller computer companies that just really went and found a niche in the market and clung to that niche in the market. You know, one of the biggest lessons of the whole history of computing is IBM's continued holding on to the idea that it was all about hardware. And I yep. guess it was Microsoft right. who exploited that weakness, the understanding that the future was in software. They did. Microsoft did exploit that. Um, it wasn't until the late 60s that the idea of selling software separate from hardware became a commercial possibility. 
And, um, of course, Microsoft was founded in the mid-70s to exploit the emerging uh, home computer market. And even in when Microsoft and IBM combined to do the first PC, IBM at that time, was its business plan was to sell some PCs. Not yeah. it was had no it had no appreciation of the software market and it had right. no appreciation of the fact that it was killing its own company. Right. That that plan. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> yeah, you were talking about the seven dwarfs. I was trying to think back when uh, I was in school. I was a computer operator and one of the first systems I worked on was a Sperry Burroughs system. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if Sperry and Burroughs they later combined to form Unisys, I think. But uh, were they one of the dwarfs back then? They were. They were two of the dwarfs. And I remember working on uh, deck facts uh, when I was in college as well. And they were uh, one of the dwarfs too. <laughs> yeah, they were one of the dwarfs too. Uh, and it, amazingly, we were using Fortran back then to program ads that were printed for the yellow pages. Uh-huh. Fortran's not exactly the language you would think of to do text processing, no. but yeah. that's what the company did. It's pretty horrifying to think about it, actually. <laughs> Well, I always wondered, they had a Pascal compiler uh, mm-hmm. for the DAC, and uh, I, I would tinker around with that Pascal compiler uh, on the weekends, and I, I grew to love Pascal at that point. We really got to give props to Apple, too. I mean, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak really did an amazing thing in bringing the personal computer to, you know, home to everybody. They did. It was, um, the personal computer market had already de- developed a couple years earlier. But it, uh, it, it was still, um, very much, um, uh, for people who were electronics enthusiasts. Right. And, um, because a lot of them were literally soldering together their own machines. Right. And the Apple was something that anyone could sit down and use. And it had the molded plastic covering and yeah. it looked like a consumer electronics item. Right. Which has always been Steve Jobs brilliance of yep. recognizing that continually pushing the computer market away from technical whiz kids to consumer electronics. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I was one of the kids that, uh, when the, when the IBM PC clones hit the market mm-hmm. and you started seeing these Japanese machines for like 800 bucks, you know, listed IBM compatible. Yeah. That uh, I was one of the guys who went right out and got one. Hey, you know, there there were clones of the uh, the Apple back then too. I remember buying a Franklin computer, which was an Apple II clone. Really? Yep. Well, they must have yeah. put the kibosh on that pretty quick, though, didn't they? Um, they they tried. Well, one of the things they did is they created the Apple GS, um, which was like a graphical user interface for Apple IIs. And, but then the Macintosh really took over. Yeah. And the Macintosh has had those large BIOS. And, um, and of course, there was an effort of to uh, do uh, Macintosh clones. Um, but uh, by having the legal rights to those, those BIOS, those large BIOS chips, they were able to um, prevent the reverse engineering of Apple, of Macintoshes, and, and keep the clone makers out of the market. Wow. Yeah, they, and you know, being a closed system has always worked really well for for uh, Macs and for Apple. I remember in the earliest days, you know, when when the open markets started competing, you know, for components 
in the PC market, which continuously drove down the prices of components like hard drives and stuff. Trying to upgrade your hard drive for a Mac was there was only one choice, and that was to go to Apple. And of course, the relative price difference was huge, right? Because Apple and didn't have competition. No, they didn't. And, and Apple, well, Apple's strategy by and by and large has always been to be a boutique computer. Yeah, they've always wanted to have twenty percent of the market, not ninety percent of the market. Yeah, and they've always been able to. Until recently, they've always tar- charged a premium for that. And yeah. people have wanted to be that convenience. And now it seems that their their prices are on par with your you know your basic IBM based Windows machines. They are, but they're still, in terms of their vision, they're still not looking to dominate the market. They're looking to do twenty percent for people who have specialized needs. Let's uh, shift gears for a minute and talk about computers in movies and okay. you know, perceptions. Obviously, science fiction drives a whole lot of technology, of what people expect from technology and therefore what people demand from it. Right. And you, you know and I know that Hollywood has done a really good job of, of uh, either butchering or, or exaggerating or simplifying, oversimplifying. Um. What are some of your favorite movies in which computers uh, sort of fire your imagination? Fire my imagination. Um, well, you know, uh, Minority Report. Oh, yeah. Away. Yeah. Yeah. And I think and part of the reason is, is um, Steven Spielberg hired computer experts to talk about what was going to actually be possible in the future. And yeah. So they did instead of having, and, and they still had stuff that was visually interesting because that's what movies have to have. Yeah. But they did say, okay, this is what the user interface may look like with, you know, basically virtual reality gloves. And they were and, right, pretty much. I mean, looking oh, at Surface and even the iPod, uh, the iPhone, and things like that. Yeah, you see the holographic displays. Uh, even watching something like uh, CSI Miami, uh, you know, they're always pulling up that similar sort of interface that you see in Minority Report. Right. Which you're going like, um, we're not really there yet. Uh, so, no, someday sure we'll be we'll have a lot more interesting interfaces. Yeah. Um, but that hasn't necessarily happened. Since one of my specialties is information security, I'm always very interested in the portrayal of hacking in movies. Right. Which is generally a, a very, very poorly done. Totally butchered. <laughs> and in fact, the movie you have to go back to to say, hey, that's a pretty decent portrayal of hacking is War Games. Yeah. A 1983 film. Yep. Oh, the Whopper. That was the computer in War Games. Yeah, it was. It, it was. And of course... The Whopper with its AI capabilities is is truly not conceivable either then or now. But all the other stuff he does with the phone freaking and how he does the hacking and yeah. um, all I mean that was actually very well researched and very uh, plausible and authentic. Yeah. So compared to so much like one of my favorite horrible movies is um, the Hugh Jackman film Swordfish. I didn't see <laughs> yes, that. I hate that movie in some ways. <laughs> I didn't see that. What's that all about? Well, what I think is hilarious is, first of all, when they do the techno babble to try to show how cool they are technology-wise, and you're going like, that sentence doesn't even make sense. 
and uh, and that happens a lot in these movies that try to um, they want the hipness and the coolness of hackers, which are like modern day gunslingers, but they don't want to do the research and be confined in their storytelling by what's actually plausible. Well, you know when 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 they sit down to write a Star Trek episode, they just have these insert techno babble here, you know. Right. <laughs> but then, uh, there's a there's a humorous scene, uh, Carl, in that movie where uh, Hugh Jackman's character is being tested to see if he can hack into something. Does he really have the chops, right? Right. So to to add a little, you know, distraction, uh, you know, John Travolta's character has uh, this this lady give him a Hummer. Uh, at the point he's trying to break into this complex Unix system. Can we say that on .NET Rocks? I'm... I was thinking that would be the most politically correct way of me saying that. <laughs> They're trying to increase tension in the scene, and all you can do is laugh. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Yeah. But can we say that in .NET Rocks? I guess we can. Okay. Yeah, you may have to bleep it out. Uh, no, anyone who's seen the movie out. will know what I'm talking about. We're talking about the, the truck. She gave him a truck. Yes. Gave him a Jeep. Yes. Uh, well, hi, Eric. Do you remember seeing a movie called Colossus, the Forbin Project? Yes, uh, early 70s. Yep, early 70s. It was based on a book by a guy named Dennis Jones. And I remember mm-hmm. reading that book in high school and was just fascinated with the whole idea of computers communicating with each other. And uh, another concept there was that a computer could design a better computer than man could. Right. And uh, that, was, that was one of the... Uh, the tenants of the whole plot there, uh, because they had built a supercomputer into a mountain uh, to basically take over U.S. defense, and right. that computer discovers that the Russians have built another one named Guardian, and the two of them hook up and basically take over the world. Yep. Huh. And that was, you know, that's one of the perennial themes you see in computer movies, is um, the fear of they will become smarter than us and take over us and of course, it was really exploited in the Matrix films and in the Terminator films. Sure. Well, how about Blade Runner? Um, yeah, well, it's interesting. Blade Runner doesn't have... I'm trying to think of the computer element, because it's mostly about uh, engineering. Well, yeah, technology. But it was sort of an anti-technology movie. I mean, if you think about it, a very very fearful of, of uh, exploited technology. Ab- absolutely. Though, if I recall correctly... there. In, in Blade Runner, they're called replicants, and um, they're not androids in the sense that they have computer components in them. They're genetically engineered super beings that have four-year lifespans. Yes, that's right. And the whole purpose of the lifespan is um, is basically a fail-safe to make sure that they can't hurt us for that long. So it's, ba- it's from a book called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? So Philip Dick book. Yeah, it is so Dick, but it's a it's an enormously depressing book. It is. I read it when I was a teenager. Very depressing. It was. I was depressed for weeks afterwards. <laughs> yeah, actually, Philip K. Dick is responsible for a lot of high tech movies. Um, uh, I was trying to think. Uh, you mentioned Minority Report. I believe that's based on a it, Philip K. Yeah. Dick story. Uh, and there was uh, there was another Arnold Schwarzenegger movie that was based on Philip K. Dick as well. Um, and uh, yet, yet another one that uh, we saw not too long ago was Paycheck with Ben Affleck. That was also a Philip K. Dick story. You know, I think that Hollywood likes his type of stories because they're about people who aren't sure what their identity is, 
and they're not sure what reality is. And I think directors like playing with that idea. Yeah, they sure do. Uh, and in fact, speaking speaking of directors, uh, I wanted to mention Ron Howard uh, got the rights to Colossus, the Forbin project. Really? And supposedly he's remaking that movie. Wow. You know, that'll be interesting because um, the the first movie, it's it's actually very interesting to watch, but hardly anything happens in it. It's, it's actually kind of an intellectual feast. It doesn't have traditional uh, narrative tension in it. Hmm. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Spoken like a true fiction writer. <laughs> narrative tension. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so tell me about your, your fiction book. Um, the Killing of Greybird. It's, uh, it's, it's set in 1865 in Utah at the beginning of what was called the Black Hawk War. And it's about an, uh, an Indian who's an adopt an Indian who had been adopted into a white family who's been murdered, and um, his brother comes back from the Civil War and is trying to figure out who was the killer. Was it um, the local settlers who were racist? Was it uh, the Indians, the Ute Indians who really hated Paiute Indians, which Black Hawk was, uh, Graybird was one of the Paiute okay. Indians. Was it the American soldiers? So it's uh, I enjoyed the book. <laughs> And I enjoyed writing it, and I enjoyed the whole experience of. Uh, do you do a lot of research for um, for the for that uh, historical oh, yeah. accuracy? It is very. The story itself is fictional, but is everything in it is very accurate. Wow, that's always very cool. Uh, I, I really appreciate that when I read his, historical fiction. I guess is what you call it. Yes. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. And I know we're digressing here into entertainment, but one of my favorite shows on TV, which of, of which I have two, and one is live Red Sox games, um, is The History Detectives uh-huh. on PBS. Have either of you guys seen The History Detectives? I haven't yet. I have seen it a couple times. Yeah, and... Basically, just not, it has nothing to do with computing or whatever, but uh, somebody has an artifact in their family that there's been lore and stories around, you know, that it came off of some, you know, some event. It was tied to some event or some historical person. Right. And the, uh, there are a bunch of appraisers that sometimes you will see them on Antiques Roadshow that uh, research it. And they do the research on the artifact and go travel all over the world and try to find the story behind it. It's just fascinating. Yeah. No, it is. It's it's a great idea for a TV series for people that want to learn more about history. I was going to say on the history of computers much earlier. You mentioned something that is kind of a kind of a myth, and I thought I might uh, please disabuse people of it. Absolutely, and that is the idea that the internet was designed um, to uh, be a command and control system during in the event of an atomic um, war. Um, that's not exactly true, though it's often told that way. The internet which was originally ARPANET, was explicitly developed in the late 60s to facilitate um, researchers at different universities talking to each other. And these researchers all had Department of Defense contracts. And so 
it was a way for them to log into other machines and use those machines. And within a couple of years of the development of ARPANET, um, email was created. I guess it was IP or TCP, one or the other that uh, was that I heard was designed to route or be able to route around different right. routers. Yeah, what happened is the Internet in the late 70s developed TCP IP. And, of course, TCP IP is a packet-based, uh, sw- packet-switching-based technology. And the packet-switching-based technology was originally developed, the idea was developed in the early 60s by a guy named Paul Baran, if I recall correctly. And what he was doing, he works with Rand Corporation, he was trying to figure out how to make Mobile, the telephone system, survive a complete holocaust of atomic bombs. That's and what I was so thinking. Yeah. He developed what he called a hot potato um, switching, hmm. and it is basically packet switching technology. And that was developed, the, the idea was developed for how to keep the phone system running after so many places have been nuked. Yeah. But when the Internet adopted that, there was still no intention for the Internet to be a command and control system. It was a research network only. Okay. And later, of course, those technologies filtered throughout the industry, and some of them are no doubt used in command and control systems. But there, I guess it's one of those shorthands that people say, yet the story is much more complex. And to also illustrate one of the most common points that you run across in the history of technology at the same time that this guy at Rand developed this hot potato technology, a guy in England developed the exact same ideas. Wow. And you see that in history of technology all the time where an idea's time has come Parallel and thinking. two people simultaneously or two teams create it. For instance, integrated circuits were developed literally simultaneously at Texas Instrument and Fairchild. Huh. Radio, right? Wasn't radio being worked on by Marconi and another guy? Yeah. And there's a lore about which one beat the other one to the patent office or something? Yeah, and and, and sometimes those stories are a little more correct than other times. But I think the, the key point to remember is that when a technology's time is ready, oftentimes we sort of have these stories of the brilliant solitary inventor that did everything. Yeah. They just happen to win the race. Yeah. And yeah, Nikola uh, Tesla is who you were thinking about with uh, Marconi. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, well, Tesla developed um, AC AC technology, and Edison wanted to do DC technology. Yeah. And um, eventually, of course, Tesla won in the sense that we all use AC because DC is not a good technology for long-range long power distances, right. But again, the idea that we have lots of... We'd reached the point where elect- electrical power generation and appliances and sending out electricity was was inevitable it's its actual configuration wasn't inevitable but that that technology would then be available was pretty much if you have a society or a culture that um encourages innovation and has the capital structure to fund that innovation then you're going to have multiple inventions simultaneously what are some of the other common misconceptions about the history of computing, you know, stories that get told that are turning more into mythology? Um, every once in a while you run into Bill Gates invented the PC. Yeah. Um, which isn't true at all. And I don't think Bill Gates would ever make that claim because he was actually there. He knows who did the, the inventing and it's not an individual. It's, it's a much more complex story. It's a group of people. Yeah. He did work on the first 
basically the first home computer, which was the Altair, out of a company from Albuquerque that came out in the mid-'70s. And um, him and uh, Paul Allen, well, Paul Allen actually was an employee of the company, and then they were allowed to create a company called Microsoft that would that created a basic interpreter that would be sold for the Altair machines. Right. Right, and MIPS was the company that did the Altair, yep. wasn't it? Yep. MIPS? Hmm. You know, I should go back and read my own book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you wrote it, but did you read it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I read it, but it's been a couple of years. Yeah. Um, I guess other misconceptions that you run across. Um, I think that some people have heard about the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, but I, I'm, I'm not sure they really understand how important that was. Well, they uh, they were the first one to do a graphical user interface with a mouse. They were well, yeah, they, yeah. yes, they were. The, the mouse itself was actually developed um, several years in the late '60s for a different project. But what the Palo Alto Research Center did is basically Xerox, which is a photocopier company, funded this research center, 200 scientists and engineers and technicians, and said, "Go do cool stuff." And they sat down and they invented within a five-year period, graphical user interfaces, um, uh, paperless office with laser printing, Ethernet, object-oriented programming. Basically, they invented the future of computing. They went to Xerox and said, we've developed really cool stuff. And Xerox is like, we're a photocopier company. And um, they didn't actually file patents or do intellectual property protection on any of the stuff. And so... It later fueled the creation of the Macintosh and, and Windows um, too, right? Recom and all the other OS Windows. Too. All that came out of this research from this group of people in Silicon Valley at the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center. It's called Park Place. In the seventies, but the guys who funded that are killing themselves. <laughs> they should be. Well, they just didn't have the vision. Yeah, and. Uh, that's an interesting story in and of itself. Do you find that um, these leaps in innovation come from, uh, you know, and I, I was talking about Les Paul and talk about an innovator. Right. You know, here's a guy who started out with more curiosity than anything else. Right. And he wanted, you know, he, he said that, you know, he would turn on the light switch and his every, normal people would say, oh, the light switch is on or off. And he would say, well, Why? You know, I want to know what's going on when that switch goes on and off. And he basically got um, an an apprenticeship working for somebody who showed him electronics. He didn't go to school for it. I mean, he just was working alongside some really smart people who took the time to explain things to him. But it was his curiosity and his creativity and his imagination that really um, had these innovations I say interventions because that's a Disney word. And I just got out of there <laughs> with my kids. Um, but, uh, but you find that, that any, anybody, if they just uh, have that creative spark and try to say, okay, these are the tools that I have. Now, how can I put them together in a new way to, do, to solve some problem or to do something very interesting? I, I do. It's curiosity. Curiosity and wanting to solve a problem that is personally meaningful is the driver often in technology. Um, and especially for the, the bigger leaps. And in the computer industry, you see that very much so. Um, one of the Googlers, um, 
it, I don't know if you guys are aware of the the origin of Google Earth, but uh, the guy who founded the company uh, Keyhole, Keyhole. created Google Earth. Right. He got the idea from reading uh, Neil Stevenson novel Snow Crash, which described an application like that, and he said, "That's cool. I want to make that." Wow, that I didn't know that. That's cool. Well, there was the Terra project. Terra Server project at Microsoft. Yeah, the Terra Server project out of Microsoft was a very similar effort, and there was a NASA project also right. that did the same thing. So, again, a perfect example of where people are are doing this, yeah. trying to create interfaces that bring all this satellite and aerial imagery. But what? But Keyhole was the first one to sort of bring the interface down to, you know, uh, something that was manageable over the yep. internet because they did that sort of just-in-time, piece-by-piece, only-download-what-you-need data thing. Oh, absolutely. I remember when TerraServer was put out. It's basically a research project by Microsoft, and I went and used it, and I thought it was cool, but it was very slow, incredibly slow and awkward to use. Right. And um, Keyhole figured out the usability issue. And, of course, it helped that they had a faster internet to work with. We had the guys on from the NASA project, which the name of which escapes me now. Um, Win something. Yeah. But that was a .NET program that was written with Microsoft.NET and C Sharp, and that's that's why one of the reasons we had them on. But I, I liked it better than Keyhole performance-wise, mm-hmm. but it, it was very, very similar where, you know, you start with the Earth and you just zoom in and you keep zooming and zooming and zooming. Um, and again, because it was a NASA project, uh, it and it just wasn't. Um, there was no intent to commercialize it, right? And even Keyhole, which then was of course purchased by Google, they're commercializing it slowly. You right. know, they're doing the it's Google thing, thing, which is build the cool technology, then figure out how to monetize it. Which it seems to work very well for them. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I remember when Google came out the first time I used Google, and I'm probably like most people who experience became instant converts. Um. Originally, Google's plan was, let's just build a community of people that love to use our technology because we're going to do really good search. And then eventually we'll figure out how to make money off it. Yeah, I don't think really people put search and money together. And, you know, it wasn't until, I when did I realize? I, I was talking to somebody, you know, that... That that it's that it's all about search because that's where you find people where they're looking for particular. It's like the ultimate opt-in list. I mean, right? You know, they're looking for something, and that's where you can sort of suggest things that they'll pay for. Absolutely. If you go back into the mid '90s, and you had all these search companies, you had Alta Vista, you had yep. Webcrawler, you had yep. InfoSeek, and they all were trying to do search, and they found that doing search was really hard, and so they they sort of gave up on doing search and they yeah. became, it was the portal strategy right. where everyone would come to you and you would do search, but you'd also give them free email and you right. give them news. And right. basically it was pulling in the eyeballs. And then with the dot-com crash, the entire advertising market went away yeah. and people lost faith. And then Google comes tootling along, you know, and I've read accounts of this. I haven't actually done the research on this, but when they developed the Google technology, they actually went to the search companies and tried to sell it for a million dollars. And they were turned down by every one of them because every one of these so-called search companies had lost faith in that technology and that being part of their vision. Right. So then they went and got a venture capitalist and put together a very simple search engine. 
that was insanely effective. I remember yeah. I was still working in the industry. I wasn't a faculty member and yet. And um, I became a convert to Google instantly because I could find Microsoft support information through Google Faster. much easier than through Microsoft. <laughs> yeah. And that's still kind of true to this day. I mean, when you want to search for something, you don't go to their website and try to figure out how their search stuff works. You just use Google. And, ever, and, and, and Microsoft had never paid attention to the search technology because they, never, they could never see how they could make money off it. Whereas Google's approach was, let's just put it together. And it's the classic nerd approach. Yeah. Let's do the cool technology, then we'll figure out how to make money. And of course, they showed that if you actually have good search results, then it suddenly makes sense to do advertising. And so targeted, too. I mean, that just makes perfect sense. Well, don't you think that's, that's going to hurt them? And I guess their own success may hurt them in some ways because they, they are so heavily used. And uh, basically being able to control uh, the AdSense the way they do Right. Uh, they they're able to give advantage, I guess, to to some companies over others. Uh, you know, the concept of quality scores pops to mind. Yeah, the, I think that success can be its own worst enemy. Though I think that if you look at Google, they're constantly putting out other products, and again, being driven by we're going to put together a really good product. We're not going to worry about how to make money off it right now because we don't need to worry about it. And I think that Google will have other successes that way too. And um, and I think that Google realizes. I call Google the world's um, biggest supercomputer, and because that's really what it is. But people don't think of it that way because they still think of supercomputers as something that's sitting in one room. Well, of, yeah, uh, it really is. It's a cluster of an immense number of computers. I think fifteen thousand. Linux-based machines or something like that in their in their cluster. Well, they won't they won't um, they don't release the numbers anymore. But the last article that seemed to be reputable had over three hundred thousand PCs wow. in multiple data centers, all running in parallel. And they're cheap PCs that are right. literally um, Velcroed instead of rack, they're rack mounted, but they're rack mounted with Velcro strips because it's easier to take them in and out than to actually use the screws. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing isn't it that's awesome it is <laughs> just a rip and run off the wall <laughs> well what's amazing is is you had venture capitalists that were willing to go with a company that basically didn't have a business plan hmm. and uh, and I think that but of course it wasn't like a lot of money I think the first, their first venture capital uh, offering uh, uh, amount was 20 million dollars what uh, do you does your book point out the significance of supporting software developers? You know, Microsoft has been very, very successful in in keeping Windows alive by um, really supporting their software development community. Um, I, I don't recall if we actually go into that as, that much, but you're entirely correct. I mean, that has been always been one of Microsoft's strengths is um, developer support. Um, and Apple, with its evangelizing effort, has, has done the same, though. Not to the not as effectively mm. as Microsoft has done it. Yeah, uh, Microsoft has always and Microsoft has always done a really good job of developing of creating development tools. Yeah, if you if you go back even into the uh, into the into the eighties when Microsoft Quite was basic. really growing, they were the only they were one of the few companies that actually had a debugger. Yeah, with CodeView, 
a really good debugger. Yeah, magic code view. Uh, do you remember the the next computer from uh, from Stephen Jobs? He had I do. founded That's a company awesome. called Next. Yep. I, I'm curious, why do you think that didn't work for him? Before its time is what I think. I I think that <laughs> I think that Stephen it's 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 ironic because it had all the flaws of the original Macintosh computer in that it didn't have color and it had, was incredibly innovative in terms of some of the hardware technology and very innovative in the software, but it was really underpowered. And so the Macintosh really didn't start to take off until they beefed it up and started to, and, 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 and then PageMaker came along and became a killer application <laughs> for it. And the next... You know, he had this window of opportunity. He had a really underpowered machine. The next, the next generation was much better, but by then all the hype was gone. And, and I'm not sure that there was really a lot of room in the marketplace for another machine. The irony is the next was basically a failure for a decade. And then when he was brought back to Apple, he forced Apple to buy the next. And so the investors actually made money off it. And then the next OS, which was the, the really the crown jewel, became Apple OS X. So in a, in a sense, it was successful. It just took 10 years to become successful. Yeah. Let's talk about the Amiga quickly. <laughs> I had, do, Amiga. do you have an Amiga? I did not, but I had friends who had one. Yeah, I had friends four. who had one, and it was just amazing. One of, the, one of the first real multimedia computers, I guess you would have to agree. Yep. Absolutely. So that's the video toaster. Uh, yeah, then. that's right. That was one of the first video editors. Right. It, it it was. It had its little niche market, but you know, the Amiga Corporation just didn't have the clout to really grow that into beyond its niche. Yeah. And eventually, PC and Apple, because they were much bigger, just took over that niche. Really. Uh, Took uh, that one of the bigger niches was uh, cable TV companies that used the Amiga to do titling and that kind right. of stuff. I remember seeing it all the time. Uh, the cable company would have an Amiga screen broadcasting twenty four hours. It's true, and but again, that's such a small market segment. Can you really use? Could you really make enough money off it? Well, do you, do you, are you working on another book, Eric? Um. I, I, I'm one of these odd people that I'm always wanting to do completely new projects. And I, I did have recently a new book, um, accepted by a publisher and it's a, um, it's called, uh, when angels wept a counterfactual history of the Cuban missile crisis. Counterfactual. So you mean another, an alternate reality? Basically it's, it's a what if scenario. It's, it's the first half is real history and the second half is made up history, assuming that Khrushchev and Kennedy did not come to an understanding and, uh, they blew each other up. It seems like I saw that on an episode of Sliders once in the '90s, or oh yeah, it's 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 not an uncommon idea, but this is more this is written straight as a history book. It's not written as an alternate history, which would be um, fictionalized, right. so it would be structured like a novel. Right. It's really it's like you're reading a it's like you're reading a history book from an alternate timeline. Wow, that sounds cool. About in my opinion, one of the most important events of the 20th century because of oh, what could have happened. Certainly was, and I think the whole world went, whew, you know. They did. And what they didn't realize is how much closer they really had come to a complete Holocaust and not, and it's only 
been later, you know, in the 90s that we've learned a lot of stuff that we didn't know at the time. Well, you know what? One thing that really drove home for me is that we have these weapons that we can't use. You know, we, yep. even it's been proven that you can't use them. It's just crazy. Right. And I remember a few years ago in Pakistan and, and uh, India were sort of rattling nuclear sabers, too. Right. And, you know, it. while the thing that worries me is that people who are, you know, emotionally unstable will get a hold of the control of these things and will uh, will do something crazy. But but even, you know, semi-crazy politician types, you got to wonder, uh, how crazy are they? Well, I... I, in my lifetime, I expect I expect to see a rogue nuke go off. I I do. I think that we just haven't been serious enough about trying to control it. And I, I mean, you know, it's a terrifying thing to say. And uh, but I I think that'll happen. Yeah, the fall of the Soviet Union has certainly not helped uh, tracking all that stuff. The plutonium and and the ingredients necessary to build a bomb. No, but Pakistan should be really worse than because Pakistan has. They have nukes. Um, we actually went in and offered to give them our trigger technology because, you know, ours, our nukes and the Russian nukes now have, have basically cryptographic machines on them. So you have to have the right code to set off the bomb correctly. And we offered that to them and they said no, probably because they suspected that we might, um, not give them all the codes. But, um, the concern is, is that Pakistan, which is really an unstable country, could lose control of its nukes, and who knows where they would go. That's right. And they're, and they can actually be detonated without having the proper code keys. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's a depressed. happy note to leave <laughs> .NET Rocks on. Thanks, Eric. Yep. <laughs> and uh, try not to think about that, folks. Have a nice day, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.